Welcome back to Murder in the Black. It is your host, Steph. And I know if you're anything like me, you cannot believe that we are one week away from Thanksgiving. Listen, do y'all have your Thanksgiving menu together? Because listen, my mom sent me a text message today. Like, girl, let's let's get all the family to fill in the basically the Excel spreadsheet on what everybody going to be bringing. I'm like, Chad, I'm not ready. But like my grandmother said, if you stay ready, you ain't got to get ready. So y'all go ahead, head to the store. And I have something that will help you in preparing for your Thanksgiving meal. This true crime case will definitely have you scratching your head while mid-episode rushing to Google to figure out what happened to Asia. Let's go ahead and get into our true crime case for today. The story of Asia Degree has really left me in a very pensive mood. And since I have you for the next 30 minutes to an hour, I have decided to project that mood onto you. I absolutely love the theater. I love live plays, Broadway, all things theater. And a lot of that is due to the fact that my father had us watching plays and going to see plays when we were younger. But the one perspective that I've gained from loving the genre is simply that for a brief moment, you are allowed to peer into someone's life, to lift the sunshade up, so to speak, and get a glimpse on what they are currently going through. And if you're lucky enough, the playwright has allowed you through the script to see maybe what they have been through in the past. But you never truly have the full picture like you would with a book. And I align that with true crime cases. We are only allowed to know so much of the backstory. And then, of course, we know when the crime occurs. And if we're lucky enough, unlike here with Asia Degree, we know what happened after the crime occurred. But I want you to look at Asia Degree's story through that lens. I want you to sit in my audience for the next 30 minutes to an hour and allow me to tell you what happened before this crime occurred and when this crime occurred. And it will leave you wondering, do you know all the facts? Do we know what happened to young Asia. Asia Jaquilla Degree was born August 5th, 1990 to her parents, Harold and Equilla Degree. Her parents married on Valentine's Day in 1988 and Equilla, her mother, first gave birth to her brother O'Brien. And just a year later, they gave birth to a beautiful baby girl by the name of Asia. Now, to know the degrees is to absolutely know that they wanted to raise their kids different, different than the mainstream narrative, what you saw out in society and what people felt was normal. 
They wanted to step outside of that and provide their children with a stable, consistent upbringing that didn't include a whole lot of influences from the outside. And many people, maybe even you, may characterize them as being sheltered. But they grew up in Shelby, North Carolina, and they actually were in a community called Oak Crest, Oak Crest Drive. It was a residential subdivision, and it was somewhat, at that time in the 2000s, it was somewhat of a rural area. But Harold and Equilla had several family members that lived in the area with them. And so whenever someone else couldn't watch the kids or someone else in the family needed to be watched, they all were a village for one another. It was all hands on deck. Now in 2000, when we catch up to Aisha and her family, Aisha is nine years old and she's in the fourth grade. Now her brother O'Brien is just a year older than her and he's 10 And they are the best of friends. Can you imagine, just for a second, having someone who is so close in age to you, you can do everything with them. And since it's just you and him, no third sibling, y'all are almost Irish twins. You know, boxy twins. You do everything together. And they absolutely did do everything together because... Their parents were working regular nine to five jobs and they are what is called latchkey kids. So Harold and Equilla would work their jobs and the kids, O'Brien and Aisha, would take themselves home, walk themselves home from school. They would have a key to get in and they would, you know, lock the door behind them, do their homework do whatever chores that were left over from the weekend and take care of themselves for just the couple of hours that it would take their parents to get home around five o'clock. And usually that was Equilla, their mother, who would get home before their father because their father was a dock loader. So there would be several times when maybe he was working a overnight shift or wouldn't get home into the wee hours of the morning. But they had a schedule that allowed one of them to at least be at home within a normal range of time for the kids to get settled, but then for them to also be able to get out of work. Now, the sheltered sense that I got from Harold and Equilla was they really wanted their kids' lives to have little influence to the public. And by that, I mean, they were church-going folks. They would go to church, and when they weren't in Sunday church, well, they were in Bible study during the weekday, and they had youth Bible study for the kids in the kid program. And when they weren't doing those things, well, the kids were at school. And Aisha and O'Brien would play basketball and they were both on the basketball team this year. It was something very exciting for them. They attended Faustin Elementary and they were just enthused that they were playing basketball. It was such a good time for them. So it was kind of like this rotation of they would walk themselves home from school. They got along very well. They were both responsible children and 
Then on the weekends, they will go to church. Throughout the week, they will go to church. And when they weren't spending time with friends and family that lived in the area, well, they were in basketball. And this was their lives. They did not own a computer and had very little access to TV. And Equilla has commented to mainstream media that the reason why she did not want her kids to have access to the Internet, because the Internet was a thing in 2000, is that she kept hearing stories about predators, kids being lured away from their home or kids being lured through the Internet um, to be pounced on upon predators. And so she felt like, you know what, we don't even need that. That's not a necessity in our household. So we're just going to, you know, alleviate that temptation for them to want to get on it. And then when they are on the Internet or at a computer, it's in the confines and safety of school. And there's all these different parameters that they have there. And so we're comfortable with that. But we don't want to bring that home because that could mean too much freedom, especially with them not being at home all the time to be able to safely help their children and navigate that. So this was a very, very nice household to live in. It really reminds me of how it was to grow up in the 90s when you didn't even have internet, honestly, because your life was very simple. You'd play outside, you would play with your cousins and play play with your friends up the block. And your life truly was just school. And if you are religious, then it was school and church and friends on the weekend. Like that was pretty much it. It was a very simple way of living. But I think to outsiders, especially at the time, since you had things like the internet, it was probably foreign to most people at the time. But for many of us who are listening and who happen to be 90s kids, this sounds very normal to us, not too sheltered at all. Who is Asia? Well, friends and family describe her as quiet, reserved. They also say that she had a disdain for dogs, thunderstorms, and strangers. And I think those are the makings of a child that age. I personally have a daughter. She's my oldest who is in fourth grade. And she is very quiet and reserved, but she blooms in front of people that she's comfortable with. You're able to really see who her personality is. And I think that's true for most children, right? You're trying to discover yourself and you're not comfortable with strangers really knowing who you are. And that was very much Asia. She was keeping it close to the cuff, but was a beautiful soul for those who knew her. Now, Asia was in the fourth grade. And so school was very prominent in her life, as it is for most elementary students. It's all about school, your friends, and any extracurricular things that you participate in. Well, Asia was a great student. And I have to say that fourth grade is a bit of a transition grade. It's where you will start to assume a little bit more responsibility, getting ready and preparing for middle school. And that's how it was for Asia. She was ready and willing to assume that responsibility, and I think accompanied with the fact that she assumed responsibilities at home that her parents didn't necessarily have to help her assist with is probably the reason why she thrived. She got A's in school. She absolutely loved reading and writing and math. And that passion, even 
at nine years old, inspired Aisha to want to become a writer and an illustrator. And there are just some children that I say have a gift from God that know exactly what they want to do at young ages. And that was Aisha. She had a passion for reading and writing, and she absolutely knew that that's what she wanted to do when she got older. As I've already said, you're defined by the things that you participate in when you are young. And she was in basketball. She had a love for basketball. And I think she shared that love with her older brother, O'Brien. Now, in February of 2000, it was President's Day. So the kids had a long four-day weekend. And just because it was President's Day, unfortunately, that means that your parents more than likely still have to go to school as well. And that was the case back in 2000. Her parents still had to go to work, but instead of leaving the kids at home because they wanted to make sure that they were safe and someone was looking after them, they decided to send O'Brien and Aisha to their aunt's home, which was down the street. They had cousins there that they could play with and have fun with while their parents went ahead and assumed the responsibility of taking care of them and going to work. But although they didn't have school on this particular day, they still had basketball practice. And so they were taxed with going to basketball practice, both her and her brother, because on February 12th, of 2000, it was Asia and her brother's first game. So she was particularly excited. Asia was the star point guard, and so she had a very important role. And unfortunately, she fouled out of that game, and they missed winning the game just by one point. She was very upset about losing this game, both her and her teammates, because I think anytime you lose a game, there is a sense of disappointment. But I think when you lose that game just by one point as the star point guard, I think you you feel a a different type of pressure, maybe than some of your other teammates. And then you feel like I almost had it. I almost won. And when you're a child, you sometimes just, you don't know how to process loss, right? And she was very noticeably upset. However, she was able to recover enough to fully engage in her brother's game, which was directly after, 30 minutes after her game was done. And she was able to participate and looked better. You know, it's like she cried it out. She suffered that loss with her friends on the team. And then 30 minutes later, she was better and she was able to enjoy her brother's game. Now, she stayed at her cousin's house that night and she actually stayed up really late. So she was just enjoying her cousins, being silly, doing what you do at a sleepover at nine years old. Now, February 13th, her parents came and picked her and O'Brien up for church because that was a part of their routine. And they had a good day at church and then quickly went back home to prepare for the night. And they were just kind of just, you know, chilling out. Her and her brother kind of went to their room. And since she had stayed up the following night, she was pretty tired. 
So she went to her room and it was still midday. It wasn't the nighttime just yet. And she went to sleep. Well, she was awoken by a thunderstorm outside. And I've already said that she had a disdain for thunderstorms. I mean, most children do. The loud lightning, the thunder clapping. And she quickly got out of her bed and went into the living room with her parents and her brother and stayed with them and kind of watched TV to try to distract herself from all the noise outside. However, at some point during the night in the Faustin neighborhood, there was a power outage that occurred because a car had ran in a lightning pole. And I'm sure, you know, the thunderstorm and the rain didn't help this at all. So the power went out. Instead of their mother running their bath for the night and trying to get them clean and prepared for the next day, she decided that it would just be too much of a hassle to do so, being that the power was out, she'd have the light candles. The hassle was not worth it. So she went ahead and sent the kids to bed. The power outage lasted about three and a half hours and it was officially back on at about 1230 a.m. Now, Harold Asia's father was coming back home from work, but before he even got home, he decided to go to the store because the very next day on February 14th was Valentine's Day, yes, but it was also his anniversary with his wife, Equilla. And so he wanted to pick up some candy for that, and he shortly returned home at 12.30 a.m. once the lights came back on in the home. When he got home, he opened Aisha and O'Brien's room where they were sound asleep in their beds, you know, just doing what I think most parents do when they get home late. I know that I do the exact same thing. If I come home and my kids are already in the bed, I come home from work and they're already in the bed, I go upstairs and, you know, give them a kiss on the cheek and just kind of just check that they're in their beds. I think it is totally natural for parents to do this. And Most parents do do this. So he went into the living room to watch some TV because he wasn't quite ready to go to bed. And he checked back on the kids around 2.30 a.m. before heading to sleep himself. And he remarked that both of the children were still sound asleep. Now, Equilla, Aisha's mother, wakes up at 5 a.m., you know, trying to get herself ready for work. But she also knows that the kids didn't take a bath the previous night. And being a good mother, she's like, well, let me just wake them up a little bit early. Let me go ahead and run their bath water and then I'll get them ready while simultaneously getting myself ready to get up and go to work. Now, she was due to go to work around 6.30. So she actually, you know, she needed to be heading out the door around 6.30. So she knew she wanted to wake the kids up around that time too and just head out. And they were taxed with the responsibility of getting themselves washed up, putting lotion on, getting dressed, brushing their teeth, and then getting themselves breakfast in order to go to school in the morning. But she goes in the children's room and she sees O'Brien sleeping, but she does not know where Aisha is. So she begins to search 
and look for her, but she doesn't find her anywhere. And she immediately wakes up her husband after searching and tells her, you know, tells him, hey, I can't find Aisha. I don't know where she is. And her husband suggests that she calls his mother who lived down the street and maybe for whatever reason, Aisha went there. She calls. His mother says, no, Aisha is not here. So Equilla calls her mother and her mother says, you do not need to delay. You need to call the police. And by 6.40 a.m., the police arrive at Equilla and Harold's home. They bring dogs with them to hopefully track down Aisha's scent. However, the nine-year-old scent could not be picked up by the dogs, probably more so due to the fact that it had just rained. And by 7 a.m., most of the neighborhood was up and they heard about the disappearance of Asia. And instead of going to work, that small community in that rural area buckled up and decided to miss work, miss whatever responsibilities they had for the day, and join in on the search efforts for Asia. Now, at some point during the night, it's important that you know that O'Brien, her older brother, said that he heard the bed squeak. And I want to say that usually when you hear a sound that you're able to dismiss, you don't wake up. Like you might wake up and hear it, but you say, oh, well, you know, that's probably the refrigerator, you know. That's probably my kids coming down the stairs to sleep in the bed with me. You know, like that's me. That's my life. Okay. Um, but for O'Brien, he heard the bed squeak and he assumed that either his sister was rolling over on her side, switching positions within the bed, or she went like got up and used the restroom. Whatever the case was, that made sense to him and that makes sense to me. And he went back to sleep. Now, they spent the entire day searching the neighborhood, searching the highway, searching everywhere around the community, and they came up with nothing. They actually sent in helicopters to do an aerial search as well as like an infrared search of her, you know, if she was in the area and they didn't find anything. They actually found what they thought may be relevant investigators, they found a mitten, but it did not belong to Asia. So local media and newspapers picked up this story and they immediately started to plaster it all throughout media at the time. And two, dr two truck drivers came forward along with another witness and said that they saw a young girl matching Asia's description walking along North Highway 18 between 3.45 to 4 a.m. that morning. And they said that at the time, the thunderstorm was still raging. And one of the truck drivers who worked for a company, he was about 26 years old at the time, said that he was extremely bothered by seeing this young girl along this highway walking. And she didn't have anything like, you know, that would make him believe that she belonged there. Like she didn't have a, a, a umbrella. She didn't have, 
she wasn't accompanied by anybody. Just, just This was so strange for him. And so he said that he was so bothered by this that he actually attempted to approach her and asked for help. But she ran away into the woods by North Highway 18. And this was the last time that anybody saw her alive. So on February 15th, investigators and the search team go out to Highway 18 and they begin to search that wooded area that this truck driver alleged she was. And along this wooded area, as they're hoping to find clues, they find really nothing. But three days later, they look into a tool shed that is along this highway in the wooded area. And that's what it sounds like to me. Like it was like they were looking in this in the woods there and they stumbled upon a tool shed that belonged to a business. And this tool shed was kind of on the side of the business. And anybody who was in the woods would have access to this tool shed. So they look in this tool shed and they find a number of candy wrappers, a pencil, a marker, a Mickey Mouse hair bow, and all were confirmed to belong to Asia. Now, in this tool shed, like it, you know, you could see how one would use this tool shed as some type of shelter to get away from the rain and to shelter themselves from the storm. But also inside of this tool shed, they find a small passport sized photograph of a girl, a little black girl who seemed to be the same age as Asia, but it was not Asia at all. Now, all the research that I've done about this case, not a lot of people have given this photo any credence. They haven't looked further into who this photo belonged to, who this girl was. Was she a missing person? They know for a fact that she wasn't in the Faustin community, but they don't know who she is. And they, there has been a narrative surrounding this photo. Was this a picture of a girl who was a victim of a predator? Was this picture used to catfish and lure Asia out of the home? Like somebody maybe pretending that they were this girl. Is this girl an actual missing person? Well, investigators haven't said anything about it. If they do indeed know who this child is, they're close, closed lipped about it. But there just isn't much information out in the public about this little girl. And as you learn more about this case, you wonder, does this tie to the case at all? Or is it useless information? They don't find anything that belongs to her other than the items that, that they found in the shed. But. Because they now are finding some things that she had with her, they start to think, okay, well, let's go back to her home and try to figure out, are there any other items that may be missing or that she may have taken with her? And when they go back, Aquila, her mother, starts to tell invest investigators that her black book bag that contained her school, that contained her house key was missing. It was no longer in the home. 
Also, they found that there was a Tweety Bird purse that was missing, black shoes, blue jeans with a red stripe, blue shoes, a white shirt with a red vest top, um, black overalls with a Tweety Bird printed on them, and a long sleeve black and white shirt. And they really started to assume that Asia more than likely packed this bag of belongings herself because nothing of necessity was included. Toothbrush, you know, underwear, none of those things that you would say, okay, uh, an adult or someone who is more mature would say, okay, you need these things if you're going to come with me, you know, take some of a special bear or something like that. None of those things were included. And so they assumed because of that, that Asia packed this bag for herself. They also naturally were able to put together that the sound that her brother heard throughout the night was more than likely Asia getting up and leaving. And they believe that she planned to leave. There was no forced entry in the house. She had a house key. And since that house key was missing, she could have easily got up, locked the door back and left the home without anyone knowing. And what they couldn't figure out is, did she leave just freely of her own accord? Was she going to meet up with someone or did someone lure her away from the home? They didn't know. And because of this, it really left investigators and a whole community baffled. The other thing that just did not make any sense to friends and family, to investigators, is why would she leave in the early morning when it was still dark? She was afraid of the dark and it was still a thunderstorm that was taking place. She was afraid of the thunder. All the things that family and friends knew about her, the things that bothered her, the things that made her susceptible when she left the home were things that she was absolutely terrified by. And they just couldn't understand what was going on with Aisha that prompted her to even leave the home. That's when they took a closer look at school and they began to question students and ask did they know anything about Asia was there anything different about Asia leading up to the days that she decided to leave her house and they discovered a couple of things that during this time her class was reading a book called Weapon Boy and the plot of that book was about two children who ran away in the middle of the night but they returned later. Could this have been a motivation? What absolutely could. They also find out through students that Asia had money on her. A little bit of money, you know, a couple of dollar bills, more than what you would expect a fourth grader to be walking around with. And they couldn't understand through the students how Asia got this money or even through her parents. How did Asia receive this money and why did she have it? They really got no answers there. Now, the search for Asia was extensive. Investigators spent over 9,000 man hours trying to find her. They put flyers. They used the media. Um, they put a lot of manpower towards finding out who took Asia. 
However, nothing of significance came from this search. They received tips, they received clues, but nothing really turned up. And so on February 20th, they called off the search. However, they still asked for help in the community and finding Asia. They wanted to keep the story alive. And honestly, Asia's family, the Degree family, they did everything that they possibly could to keep this story alive as well. So investigators put up a $5,000 reward in efforts to find out more information about what happened to Asia and ask for the public's help. In cases like this, like Jean Bonnet, where a child goes missing inside of the home where the parents were present and others in the family were there, naturally, I think you start to wonder, did the family have anything to do with it? I think that is a very good question. But the truth of the matter is that the Degree family had nothing to do with this, and they were cleared as suspects by investigators. They were very cooperative. They took polygraph tests. They passed those. They allowed investigators to come into the home whenever they needed. They provided information and did everything they possibly could to get Asia back home. Now, the FBI became involved in this case as well because this was a missing persons, a uh, missing child's case. And so they were trying to work with local PD to try to figure out what happened to Asia and at least give the family some type of closure in this case. And investigators and the FBI really just were scratching their heads. They didn't understand why Asia would even leave the home. As I've already mentioned, she was scared of the dark, she was scared of thunderstorms, and she was scared of saint strangers. And when she left the home that day, she was opening herself to all of the things that she was scared of. But not only that, even if you can equate that the plot, Weapon Boy, was something that motivated her to leave her home, well... Could the basketball game that she lost be another factor? They just couldn't tell. They couldn't put their finger on it. They really didn't know. And it left investigators scratching their head. But in August of 2001, a discovery was made. A contractor was digging and unearthing dirt to try to build. And he stumbled upon a black backpack that was wrapped in two black trash bags. It was located near Highway 18 by Laurel Creek, 26 miles away from the Degree home and in the opposite direction where she, Aisha, was last seen walking. They discovered inside of those plastic bags was Aisha's backpack. And they were able to identify that it was Aisha's backpack because her name and phone number were written on the inside of the backpack. Nearby, they found men khaki trousers and animal bones nearby. So the FBI conducted testing, but they have never released that information to the public. Now, a piece of paper with Aisha's name was written on it inside of the backpack. A pencil case was found and the key that accessed her home was missing. So... Although this information was held back, like the testing that was done was held back from the public, there were signs that 
Aisha more than likely was met with some type of foul play when she left her home that night. Now, 20 years after her disappearance, the FBI began to reinvestigate this case in 2015. And in 2018, they finally released some of the things that were found in Asia's backpack. They found a Dr. Seuss McGott book. And they also found a new kids on the block nightshirt with the new kids on the block lettering on it along with a picture of the band. Now it is important to note that no none of these items belong to Asia, but they have concluded that that Dr. Seuss book was taken from the library at her school, Faustin Elementary. And I know you're probably wondering, well, if they were able to identify that it came from the library, then why weren't they able to identify who checked it out? Well, time had gone by. I'm sure records were not as accurate. And so they weren't able to identify who the book was checked out by. But they strongly believe that these pieces of evidence are the last things that will able that will be able to help them understand what happened to Asia or who could have been involved with Asia's disappearance. And so they plea for the public's help in trying to find out what happened to Asia. And so the FBI in collaboration with the sheriff's department put a $25,000 reward in the efforts to find out what happened to Asia, who took Asia, who was responsible for Asia's disappearance. And on top of that, an additional $25,000 was put up by the sheriff's department and a community group to have an incentive, more of an incentive for someone to come forward and say what happened to Asia. Now, in the meantime, in between time, they have received a tip that someone a witness came forward and said they saw Asia that night or that morning getting into the car of a 1970 car. It could have either been a Lincoln Continental Mark IV or it could have been a Ford Thunderbird. But they did notice that whichever car it was, it had rust around the wheels. The FBI has continued to work with Cleveland County Police Department in efforts to solve Asia's case. They've combed over new evidence, offering assistance for further testing, and also have conducted over 300 interviews. Sadly, no suspect has surfaced in this case, leading investigators to call this a cold case. The Degree family did not let this get them down over the years. They have created a scholarship in Asia's name at her former elementary school, and they also hold an annual walk in bringing awareness to Asia's case. Takeaway. So my takeaway this week will start out wide and then we'll zoom away with what I have to say about this case. So this case was actually recommended by one of our listeners and our Facebook fam, 
fan page. Shout out to Lee. She messaged us there and told us how much she wanted this story to be told and how much she felt like the story needed to be told. So I immediately went on to Google because the name of the case who it pertained to, Asia Degree, didn't ring any bells. And immediately Asia's picture popped up and she looked so familiar. I couldn't place how I knew her because the bare facts of the case didn't sound like something I'd heard before. But, you know, being a true crime junkie, you probably at more than one time or another, you click on a show and you listen to it or maybe you fall asleep and you can still like remember some remnants of it. But Asia's case really bothered me. And I'm going to tell you why. Because in a lot of cases, when we kind of lift up that sunshade, so to speak, as I mentioned before, we are getting context onto what was going on with the people inside of the case. And I just don't feel like we know a whole lot when it comes to Asia's case. And that just bothers me on a very fundamental level. And it doesn't have much to do with the fact that it's a cold case because a lot of people say well naturally you will have a lot of questions it's a cold case it's unsolved but I don't really feel like in my gut that's what bothers me I think the more you begin to understand what happened to Asia the more questions you have and you're just like this just doesn't make any sense it goes beyond what we think about her character or what we know about her character traits and then what her parents taught her. So the first two examples really will quite, will make quite a conundrum for you and for me as the listeners. So I just want to remind you what the things that the things that bothered me the most inside of the case. The first thing is we learned that Asia was very quiet and reserved. And some of the things that really made her feel fearful or that she was scared of was dogs the dark strangers and thunderstorms all four of the elements that she would encounter if we go with the theory that she decided to leave on her own these are all four things that she would encounter going out into the early morning of that day so why would she do that Knowing everything that we know about her, that her parents have said about her, others that were close to her said about her, it just seems unlikely that she would go out there herself in the elements that bring her the most fear and anxiety. The other thing that I want to mention and is worthy of me bringing back up is that I mentioned at the top of the episode that many would believe that that the degree family were sheltering their children and the main reason why Equilla Degree says she didn't want her kids to have access to the computer is because she kept hearing stories about child predators luring children away from their homes and their safe environment and she just did not want to have that risk available for her children so I'm pretty sure being a parent, you instill that that fear and into your children, right? Like don't talk to strangers. Don't, you know, don't do all these certain don'ts so that they don't expose themselves to a safety risk when you're not around. And I'm pretty sure that she did the same thing for Asia. So then that kind of knocks down the theory that someone was able to lure her away from the home. And that's my biggest question. How is it 
that Aisha got out of the home with no forced entry? Why is it that she would actually leave knowing that all the things that gave her fear and anxiety were waiting at her doorstep as soon as she left the home? It just doesn't make much sense. And every time you try to use the theories that the investigators have came up with, you land at zero. Like you just feel like, what? And while you're able to see underneath that sunshade and peer into someone's life before a tragic event happened like it did to Asia, you seem to have a little bit more context. You seem to know just a little bit more. And the truth of the matter is, is that you don't know anything at all, truly. And after 20 plus years, here we are wondering what indeed happened to Asia. And so my takeaway is the truth of the matter is that as a parent, you do everything as a good parent. Let me put the emphasis on a good parent. You try to do everything that you can possibly do to shield your, your, uh, I was about to say students, but your children, sorry, I'm in teacher mode. You try to do everything that you can to shield your children away from the dangers and the evil of the world because you're aware of the evils and much like Equila and Harold you do things that would promote safety you tell them about strangers you try to keep them away from things that could be a potential risk but the truth of the matter is is that sometimes evil is at your door whether you know it or not and I think having that awareness having that forethought it kind of helps you to navigate this thing called parenthood. And my heart goes out to Harold and Equilla and O'Brien degree because they didn't do anything wrong. They were doing the best they could. And I don't think that this was an avoidable situation. I think something happened that they're unaware of. And it promoted either Aisha leaving the home or someone being able to lure her away from the home. Either way, she was more than likely met with foul play. And I personally don't know if she's alive or not, but more likely than not, she just isn't. And that family is left without closure. And so I just want to say that if you have any information about what happened to Aisha, please get in contact with the Cleveland County Police Department. But this is unfortunately what the Degree family is left to deal with every time they have to recount their anniversary because this happened on the day of their anniversary. Every holiday, every birthday, they are riddled with grief and left without no closure so my condolences to the degree family and I hope that this pushes you to go out and do a little bit more research about this case and of course if there's any updates we will be sure to let you know until next time friends this is murder in the black